I just took myself to Paris one day um, to the shows, and I didn't know anyone. I knew I talked to waiters. That was all that I would talk to for four or five days, stay in some dodgy hotel, go to the shows, sit in like row J. I always joke that for a while I didn't think models had legs because my seat was so bad. It would just be torsos. <laughs> I'm um, just floating around. But, oh, I don't know. Do they have shoes? Um, you know, but get in the show and people would be so mean and you wouldn't know anyone, but you would just go. But you're still there. I was still there. And it was great. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. My guest today started life on a farm in Australia and grew up dreaming of a career as a fashion journalist. After bouncing around the magazine world, hustling to get freelance gigs and into fashion shows, she knew she needed to be in New York City and arrived here days before September 11th, 2001, with just $5,000 to her name. Since then, she spent 11 years at Harper's Bazaar, eventually becoming its executive editor. She's collaborated on campaigns with everyone from Martin Scorsese to Tim Burton, and now she runs one of the world's most successful fashion media brands as editor-in-chief of InStyle. Laura Brown, welcome to No Limits. Thanks. I'm feeling unlimited. I'm sprawled. <laughs> I'm sprawled all over the desk making a, a shambles of ABC radio studio. And it's beautiful. I wish you could be here to see it, guys. It is. It's, it really is. You should see the views. <laughs> I've got of, the, the latest. nothing. <laughs> I've got the latest magazine with Amy Schumer on the, mm-hmm. on the cover. We're going to get to that in a second. But I want to talk to you about your childhood a little bit because <laughs> you were, you were born on a farm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're born on a farm? Yes. Did I was, you work not on the farm? Um, but... No, my dad, bless his soul, um, was Farmer Brown, quite literally. He was a dairy farmer uh, in country New South Wales, about two hours outside of Sydney. So my, um, we were on a farm, like a, a brown Swiss cattle farm where he would go and milk the cows um, every day. And I would scamper around with my pets. Uh, I had a, a, yeah, I had a black and white cat called Blackie and Whitey. Because I was a poet. Anyway, um, so yeah, till four. Till five, till five, actually, until the divorce. And then, <laughs> w- w- did it then, seem like that when you were a kid? Did it no, feel that way? No, I just, I always like to say divorce dramatically. Um, no, when you're five and your parents get divorced, I think that you don't really remember much, I hope. I think it's, look, if your parents are going to get divorced, which is no one actually plans for, I think it's better when the kids are younger than when they're older. I remember sort of sitting on a couch and like them telling me something and like, and then going patting me and I was like okay and then you just kind of carry on you know what I mean you don't you don't I don't think I think you I mean it depends on the kid obviously but I don't think you weather it as as it's not as difficult as it is when you're say a teenager and you grew up with your mom. So I got my mom in Sydney um, in a little one-bedroom flat. We moved around a little bit. Um, we did Manly in Sydney, which is a beachside um, beachside suburb, and then moved to North Sydney, which is basically where the Harbour Bridge is and the Opera House is on one side and where the bridge ends on the other side. That's where we lived. Um, so we lived in a little, like, one-bedroom, like, um, what do you call it? wouldn't be like a council estate, but it was called Housing Commission, which is, like, subsidized housing because um, we were po. <laughs> you were. Oh, did yeah. you did you know it at the time? Did you feel yeah, it? Yeah, um, no, 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 not like. I mean, it was always food. I mean, it wasn't like we're you know. Um, it's not like a Sarah Jessica Parker story where there's seven kids and you're you know. Um, no, it was like you know. My mom worked in a insurance sort of company and various jobs, and um, I I think I no, we always ate, and there was you know, we'd drive around, we'd get pizza, and it wasn't like no, it wasn't like a bad movie. Um, just subsidized housing, and um, and then I. Sub- subsisted on my delusions of grandeur. So no, I um I worked. I started working from when I was about thirteen, fourteen. What was the first job? It was working in uh, what we would call a lolly shop, but it's like a a beachside. My my uncle had a seafood restaurant in Manly, and there was um it would be like the uh a be like a store that sold food on the beach. Like uh we call it a lolly shop. So it would be like you'd sell ice creams, you'd sell sandwiches, you'd sell. Um, chocolate bars or whatever to bottles of water. Actually, not even bottles of water then, because no one bought bottled water. In, like when I was like in 1988, this affectation has hit us later. Um, so maybe you sold yeah. a Coca Cola or a Pepsi from Coca-Cola. time to time. Yeah, I sold a Coke, and I would make sandwiches and um and make money, you know, and then uh make my money, and then I graduated to like waitress, 
at about 15 um, in this seafood place. And I worked in that in that restaurant for until I finished high school, till 17. So and made my own money. Did you, you at know? that point, did you want to move to the U.S.? Did you have dreams of uh, working in the magazine industry? Yeah, I mean, since I was about nine, I really loved I really loved magazines. I loved the otherness of it. It always seemed like it was something a, different, a world apart from me, and so isn't. Um, but uh, I loved glamour, but not in like a necessarily like a – I wasn't that sort of person. I wouldn't be like, I'm going to put on a taffeta dress and swan around. I just liked – I loved the supermodels. I loved uh, movie stars. I liked art. I liked things that were being made and whoever represented that to me, and especially being from Australia when you're just – you're far away. So it feels even more like it's this sort of super highway that you'll never be on. Right. Um, it's so, so distant. It's so distant. And, and so you mythologize it. You know, I'm always never like a fantasist or anything. I've always been really pragmatic. But um, you certainly do go, oh, there's, there's, the shiny, there's the shiny world. And it's not, and it's not where I am, and I like it, and I want to get there in some way. Getting there in some way—that is yeah. the question, though. When yeah. you're, uh, because murder, I, I think you murder a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, sorry, oh, did I say that out loud? When, when you're, when yeah. coming from your background, yeah. I, I feel like I came from a similar place where I just had no idea where to even begin with this sure. industry. Yeah. So, how did you figure out that first step? Were there mentors around telling you yeah. this is what you do, Laura? No, you know what's. Funny, I, I know I, this mental question is. I always feel bad that I don't, I can't readily answer it. But I think I just kind of, I got out there. Like we would do in high school, it'd be called what we would say internships. We, we at home we call it work experience. Yeah, work experience. And uh, I would go into magazines and go and like get the bagel. You hustled. And I have the hustle muscle, not a mercenary hustle muscle, but a hustle muscle for sure. Um, and so I would go like 15 years old, go and intern at Hero Magazine, which was a fashion magazine there. Various things. And you'd go there for one week or two weeks and you'd be kind of in it. And it would, would be so exciting. And uh, and so you just kind of through the end of high school, I would do as many of those as I could. And you do those on your on your holidays. or And so I knew I wanted to write and I wanted to be in, in print magazines. So... Um, I then studied communications. I got into a communications journalism course in a country university called Charleston University Mitchell, um, which was a very high, hugely highly regarded course, but it was like three hours outside of Sydney. Um, and then when I was doing that, I was super bored by the theory of it. Um, and I just wanted to get moving because there's a lot of – it was still like in, the, in those days, early 90s, you, you didn't you know, necessarily have computers at home. You didn't have the internet really. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? At all? Did you? I can't remember. Don't fact check me. And um, <laughs> I don't recall that. And um, and so you would be looking at a lot of theory and you would be like, it, it felt old fashioned a lot of the ways it was being being taught. And then you'd be like, no, I just want to go and work at a newspaper. I just want to go and get moving because guess what? What we do and studying what we do, it's vocational. And you just have to sort of start doing it. You can't theorize about it all day. You just got to get in there and hone your instincts and hone your idea of what a lead is with a story and how to tell a story and how to structure a story. And you can have people, you know, uh, critique you on that and learn from them. But at the end of the day, your instinct ends ends up sort of forming. So, yeah, I did a ton of uh, work experience through those years too. And I ended up – because I was early when I started college because I was so smart. No, not really. I – we started, started you were to, you knew you were on a mission. It sounds yeah, like. yeah. I started at seventeen um, college, and and because our arts degrees are only three years, because um, we're just lazy people. No, I, we. Um, <laughs> I was done by nineteen, and I finished. I finished my final course by correspondence because I was so eager just to go and get a job. So I just did my last paper. I came back to present it when I was already working. Australian Family Magazine. It lasted for. About two months. I had this really kind of hilarious checkered history of going to work at magazines, intern or whatever, and then we'd close down. Um, Correlation? The, the causation? Laura Brown. No limits. Tons of limits to magazines. So, so I was there for like two months. But then I started at this magazine called Mode as an assistant. And Mode fancied itself as like a W magazine, kind of Sydney social. Sydney Social, they all talk like that there um, when they're posh. Um, and, um, Did they? Oh, yep, absolutely. And um, so I, I, I was assisting there and then I started doing production, which sucks. It's it's very boring, and, but it's you're the one like writing out the, the flat plan of how the magazine will lay up. And then at the same time, I was doing it by hand because we didn't have the programs. This was 1892. Um but and so and you're chasing people around to get their hit their deadlines and all that, doing all of this sort of 
grunt work. work. Grunt work. And I wanted to write so badly that um, I would be like, okay, I'll put my hand up to write this news page about the collections or an album coming out or whatever. And I would sit there at night and I would write. They were receptive to that. Yeah. Because all the magazines in Australia have very small staffs, Um, especially, especially then. You had like 16 people in your staff or whatever. So if you could acquit yourself, um, you could do it. So then I ended up just sort of having ownership of these pages and and, and writing sort of fun, like lifestyle-y, fashion-y stuff. Um, But then I really, um, the the typical thing that you do when um, you're in Australia near the bottom of the world, and I'd never been on a plane or anywhere um, until I was 21. So I just, my first flight ever was a $565 ticket one way to London on some sort of, I don't even know, I swear there are livestock on there. I don't know what the hell this plane was. Um, I remember it was a good old days we could go visit them in the, in the cockpit. Um, but <laughs> you, you went and flew the plane I, for no, a little I bit. No, I went and sat in the cockpit and the guy was like, I'll go this way and that way. And he tilted the plane two ways. Oh, God. Oh These, I know. Those heady days in 19... Oh, bloody. What was this? 1997. Yeah. 1997. Uh, you're on your first flight ever. I moved, Yeah. I moved to... 97? Oh, yeah. Hang on. 96. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm all over the road with my dates. Anyway. I'm actually 75 and I've been lying the whole time. But, um, <laughs> and no, and so we moved, it was me and three girlfriends and we did move to London and we did that sort of Aussie backpacking thing because, again, we're at the bottom of the world and we've not seen anything. So we do this thing where we're like four of us went around for three months and just got drunk a lot and ate a lot. And do you think that was badly. a good thing to do? Oh, yeah, you have to. You have to do it. And, you got to, and then your money runs out and then you've got to go get a job and then you see things. And we went, we went to Portugal and Spain and Amsterdam and... Ireland and Scotland and you know all around Europe it was fabulous and um and you and you just we were just terrible as as you are at those those ages and then we turned up in London broken fat <laughs> so we would eat was like white bread in, in parks oh we were so fat it was so funny um and uh, and then we had to get a job in London so I was in London for two years um trying and I had this brilliant idea that I was going to become a freelance fashion writer in London not knowing anyone and London's not very easy you know, it's not the sort of place, like I always say the difference. When New York and London, if you, even if you meet a pretentious person in New York, this will talk to you. London can be quite exclusionary and quite clicky and just, you know, when you make friends in London, you make them for life, but it's harder at the beginning. So I remember trying to do that. And I remember one day I didn't have enough money for a Coke. I didn't have 50p for a can of Coke. Um, so I ended up, I worked at the BBC for a bit assisting and then I ended up working at an advertising agency called Mother. Then I got a job at Australian Consolidated Press, which was the London office of the publisher that I had worked for in Sydney. On this path, mm. uh, you know, you're in London, you have very little to your name, and yeah. you're trying so hard to find something and you're being shut out. Yeah. Do you ever think at this point, maybe I should just choose a totally different path? No. Why not? I just knew I could do it. You know what I mean? And I just was like, you know, I. My opportunities to write, I think I always knew that I could write for people back in Australia because there is something, speaking of the mythology, if you are in another place, people in Australia will ask you to do stuff. So I always could, I couldn't necessarily get commissions in London so much, but I could get them in Australia. So I always had that kind of, that kind of backbone and just being like, no, okay, well, but I was still like hungry enough, even if I would be working at um, ACP, I would go, I remember one day I took myself off to, and I, because I was writing for, um, Harper's Bazaar in Australia then, or a little, at least a little bit, and I would get myself accredited as a as a contributor or whatever for Bazaar Australia to the Paris fashion shows, and I just took myself to Paris one day um, to the shows, and I didn't know anyone. I knew I talked to waiters. That was all that I would talk to for four or five days, stay in some dodgy hotel, go to the shows, sit in like row J. I always joke that for a while I didn't think models had legs because my seat was so bad. It would just be torsos. Um, just floating around. But I don't know. Do they have shoes? Um, you know, and I'd better get in the show and people would be so mean and you wouldn't know anyone, but you would just go. But you're still there. I was still there. And it was great. And I remember living in London, I used to like for a while sneak into the Alexander McQueen shows, which were the greatest, still the greatest shows you would ever see uh, in like the late 90s. Just p- poetic, but like a rock. Like better than any rock concert, better than anything, and, and just going what fashion could be and the world that it could conjure up um, uh, was so incredible. So you know that. It, so but then I had the proximity. So then when you have the proximity, even if you're in Row J, 
it feeds your desire all the more and you start working within that. So at least I was there. At least I could – I used to get frustrated that I couldn't see things firsthand and everything felt secondhand. So at least it was firsthand, even if, if it was far away. Um, so I did that. My visa ran out, came back to Australia. Um, this is 99. And um, I started working for Harper's Bazaar. No, I worked in a Versace shop for six weeks. How was that? Oh, I was crap at it. I couldn't give for it to save my life. <laughs> Did you terrible. sell a lot of clothes? No, no. I just was like, I don't want to do this. But it just was funny. It was funny. You know, customers always right. And it was Versace was like, you know, Versace-ish. And uh, no, it was fine. Um, but then I wanted to get back to Bazaar, and so I started working there, and I was there as a feature. How did editor. you get that job back at Bazaar? I knew people there, and I just was like... You had been freelancing for them yeah, for a time. Yeah, and I just was like, come on, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? You were, you were aggressive and, uh, about well, just, just was like, touching base yeah, over and over like, again? Yeah, guys, like, come on, let me in. I know I always, I, I think my, my, my subliminal fear sometimes is like not being able to go get back into a life you created for yourself, you know what I mean? It was like being like, no, come on, let me back, let me back. And, um, and so they did. And uh, I sat there as a features editor, and I was there for two years. But the whole time, my head was here. Like, it was just here. I, I'd come here on one little trip when I was in London, stayed in a dodgy hotel, went to the diner for a diner for the first time. I thought I was in a movie. Went to Windows on the World for dinner. Um, and I'd had a little taste of it, you know. And then when I got back to Australia, we had internet then. Um, but you'd be writing about – I remember very clearly, and it sort of sounds sort of – meaningless but it was like a helmet lang had had a show and i was writing about the show from looking at online and i just got so frustrated because again i was like i just want to see it with my own eyes i need to see things and be with them be it a helmet lang fashion show be it like park avenue be it like whatever be in the room park the important place yeah i just wanted to see it and not feel like things were secondhand so um and i remember we used to get all the all the american magazines um in a bag from New York, and I snaffled them all up, and I would take them home. And one day, I was in my, I had this great apartment. I was like living like right on Har- uh, Sydney Harbour, really great views. And I was reading New York Magazine, and I was reading Intelligencer, and it was about the time. I, this is another timestamp. I think I was reading something about Moomba, right, <laughs> the club. And uh, and I was so immersed in this Intelligencer. I was so immersed in in New York. I was just was like in it, and I swear I looked up, and I'd f- completely forgotten where I was. I just was in New York. You had taken yourself there. And I, I, yeah, and I was like, my apartment looked at the Harbour Bridge. Like, you couldn't be have any ambiguity about where the bloody hell I was. But I was in New York. Um, and so I Did saved, you think it was a sign? Yeah. I did what I knew anyway. And I was like, so I saved, like, I think I had, like, $8,000 Aussie, which was $5,000 US at the time. The exchange was really bad. And I had a foreign journalist visa, which means, like, I couldn't make money from here I had to like I could live here and report but I had to report for Australian the publications or whatever yeah. Australia so I got the visa turned up here I knew one and a half people I knew one I had one friend and one person I sort of knew and I arrived on September the 4th 2001 so were you oh scared God, on yeah. September 11th yeah I was delusional for a minute because I think anybody that was here was a bit like also it was like fashion week and it mm-hmm. sounds really dumb but like I'd been at the Mark Jacobs show the night before and and it was so glamorous and it was so like – I was like, I've made it. I'm here. It was like this almost like Dionysian like fest after the show. It was all like – I just remember lots of like Rosanna Arquette and a bunch of grapes and everyone was drinking and it was it was on a pier and it was beautiful and it looked downtown to the Trade Center even. I was with a, a French girlfriend and we were both kind of drunk and um, we're like, woohoo, you know, look where we are. So the next day, when the first thing you know, on the news, we wow. all like heard like a plane's hit something. But again, you don't know what sort of plane it is. You don't know. And I think anybody would be like, does this affect my day to day? Does this affect my – because you didn't know what it was when right. it was first actually happening. And so I literally thought of the fashion shows cancelled because you don't know that it's a terrorist attack. You don't know what's up. And um, I remember – and I remember it was so like visual, you know, mm-hmm. and at the time you weren't necessarily computing – how horrifying it was because you just it's like snapshots mm-hmm. and I was standing in 6th Avenue on 6th Avenue and I was standing next to Susan Sarandon it was me and I just got kept going like I'm watching a Die Hard movie or something you know you're not mm-hmm. you're not getting it at all and because I think it's your protective thing you're just trying to make it into something else and I was standing next to Susan Sarandon I saw her the other day and I, I was like remember I was like, that's right I was standing next to you it was so weird um but 
I didn't really compute it till about three weeks later, I don't think. I didn't get up really upset until about three weeks later because I think you know, everyone was in shock, I guess. My poor mom. I mean, did she was, want you to come home? Yeah, I mean, look, we all know being in New York, we know how visceral and terrible it was, but it, on, the, on the TV, it looked like World War Three. You know, when you're sitting on and watching television in Sydney, mm-hmm. you're like, my daughter's there. And I'm like, I know, but I'm still, Gristides is still open and I'm still going to get my ta- my canned tuna. And, you know, like, you're, I mean, you know, we're just right. in Don't bars worry, all mom. The time. I'm going to be all right. Yeah. I'm we going to be just, smart and safe. Yeah. And we were all just, remember how everyone was so social? Everyone just wanted to go out and, and be together. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was horrible for my mom. Um, but no, I never wanted to leave. I was in it then, you know, and I was working at the New York Post freelancing doing fashion stuff, but also like doing September 11th reporting. And it was such a, I remember my first year, I actually don't remember much. It felt like a dream sequence kind of. Like I remember I had to go get a social social security number, but I don't really remember where I went, you know, mm-hmm. or like going past big hunks of burning, like melted metal downtown to go and do that. And I just don't have a lot of establishing images anymore because it was such a, odd sad time that um that i do know i never i never want to leave a bunch of aussies left you know and i just was like ah, no i'm here now how did you yeah. make contacts in the beginning because you seem like a very social person I and a very open person with so many no um i um my friend libby calloway she was um the fashion editor of the new york post uh and i'd met her in australia because she was on an exchange with the australian newspaper um and I met her, and I, she was one of the first ones that I said, I'm going to move to New York. So I had two friends. My friend Sarah Winter, who's an actress, she's Aussie. She lived in L.A. So I had, like, two fairy godmothers and different um, – but she would just, like, take me out and I'd meet, I'd meet people. But I met this guy, Mayor Roshan, who at the time was a deputy editor of Talk magazine, but he was working for New York magazine when I met him in Sydney, and he was down to do a profile on Lachlan Murdoch. And we had dinner together, and so I met him and um, – Went to go meet him at Talk magazine, another magazine that I was employed at, which closed down. See, no limits to my <laughs> ability to close down magazines. And um, and so I went went to see him, and he sort of gave me like a freelancey kind of gig um, there, where I met Tina and I mean not Tina Brown and whatever, but like I didn't even know her particularly well. But then I um, I freelanced again on and off. Like I just did – I met people that worked at Women's Wear Daily. I met, you know, this and that. I had a boyfriend in L.A., so I was coming and going from L.A. a bit. But I just sort of, yeah, just met people. I, and it wasn't in a way – like I never had a list. I never had a, I will do this. I, I'm more of a surfer. It's just sort of like, oh, there's a – I remember going – oh, so naff, so embarrassing. But I remember going to a party at the Calvin Klein store, and Calvin Klein was there. It was so exciting. I was like, that's Actually, Calvin Klein. Um, you know, I see all the time. Now, but, you Did know, you take a picture? No, I was cool. Yeah, not cool. Um, <laughs> and um, so, but I was sort of around to things. I would meet people, and then you were in the right places. You kept yeah, pushing to, to go, and your friends were helping I you get the, in and... the ship a bit, I guess. But uh, my first real like sponsored job was um, at W Magazine. They gave me a visa. Um, my baby's first visa. I'm forever grateful to them. And they hired me as a senior editor um, there. So that kind of got the real real train going. Um, and I was there for almost two years um, editing a lot of our foreign bureau people, people in Paris, Milan, writing. I did my first cover story there, which is Jennifer Garner. Blew the lid off Jennifer Garner. And um, – but then details called, and I was curious about men's magazines. Um, Why? I just had not done it. I was like, oh, let's let maybe I'll write about because again, W is super social, super. I was like, I'll just maybe I'll get write, like write about finance or whatever the hell it was. It sucked. Really? Yeah, I didn't like it because uh, you weren't um, interested in the content, or the- I like the people. I like. I just oh, I should take the fifth. It just wasn't fun. It wasn't a fun place to work. Um, it could have been. Uh, but it wasn't. And during that time, and it's funny because I can sort of rally, but it was like sort of you know, not the greatest. But Bazaar had been calling me a little bit because Glenda had started there. And I met Glenda, like right, Glenda Bailey, right after September 11th, actually. And um, and they were like, do you want to come? And I was like, oh, I was, I'm just going to details now, actually. So I can't order. You know, I'm, I'm going to, I just was starting at the other place. And I kept calling, kept calling. And then I, um, 
and I met their deputy editor at the time. His name was Sarah Bailey, an English lady who'd come over, and she was we just had a drink, and she was fabulous, and she's still one of my closest friends. And so I said, okay, and I I went over there, started there on Valentine's Day, two thousand and five. Um, and, uh, I started as like an articles director, which is like, just, I thought, oh, I'm just going to be editing a couple of essays a month, you know, and it turned into so much more. I, I, you know, I, I did that for a bit and then I I started sort of masochistically, it seems turned out like taking on the celebrity bookings, booking the covers. What goes into that? that? God, it's so undignified. Um, What's undignified about it? No, it's just like if if your boss wants one person and you just have to keep asking, and you're like, can we not? Because I don't want to do it. Right What's right the now. secret to a good ask? Um, a good ask is knowing that you have a persuasive idea, knowing that the time is right for the person. Say if it's Jennifer Aniston. You can't ask Jennifer Aniston for a cover ten times. You know, when she does um, takes turns, like she'll do this cover or that cover. She'll only do a cover when she has a, a project. She's not going to do covers for no reason. So you just gotta be pra- a pragmatic but persuasive booker is is the best booker as far as I'm concerned. So, you know what we were able to do was, um, and again, Bazaar was a good um, training ground because we didn't have we weren't Vogue in terms of the Vogueishness. We didn't have mass circulation like a Glamour or you know L or In Style, um, but we were original, high fashion one and original. So people would come to us because we had good ideas and we weren't just resting on our laurels because we had to hustle a little more because we weren't the instant go-to um, and we weren't the mass go-to. Um, so we would be – but we would be the, the sort of the cool go-to. And you, that yeah. meant you could be experimental a little bit? Yeah, we would just push it a bit. Like I stuck around in a shark. Just try, and Glenda, my boss, would not, you know, settle for magazine fodder. She always wanted to push it. Um, so, you know, but I learned that what – sort of fast-forwarding a bit. At the beginning I just started doing covers but then I started having ideas creative ideas for portfolios and all those kind of things so I started becoming like a a features director and booker but also a creative director you know sort of without title but very much a conceptual person so one of the first things I did which was great was like um sending the Simpsons to Paris right for fashion week right yeah and working on the Simpsons and animating them with like Linda Evangelista who was like taking them to Paris and and um and that was just also like I, w- I would like to work with pop culture and fashion together. How'd you come up with that idea? I don't know. I don't remember. Um, I kind I of believe was, you. No, I, no, no. <laughs> I think someone had said we should do something with animation at some point, and it was just in passing. And then I was like, Oh God, we should do. I I love Simpsons, and that would be like I always like something that's got a bit of a. Can you understand that? A rub. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. it's like it's got it's got like something in common. It's got a little raw it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so well, I went off there and, and befriended their creative director and what was so cool about that shoot shoot wasn't shoot, that drawing, um, was I love like I like seeing things going out there into the world and not in an ego way, but in like a how peop how you have an idea and then it suddenly just arrives and things happen because of it. Mm-hmm. Like a a ripple effect or something. And the craziest thing was I remember um I was looking at a a social picture and, and I ran no, I ran into Mark Jacobs and I'd seen a picture of him somewhere and it had this like fake tattoo of his um of his character from from a thing from the the portfolio and I was like, Oh god, I love that fake tattoo you got um with yourself as as a Simpson. He goes, No, it's not fake. And so he so he got I, the tattoo because yeah, of the yeah of the thing. So on Mark Jacobs' arm, there's Mark Jacobs as a Simpson, which has been conceptualized by Julius, who's the actor of Simpsons, and me. Wow, it's wild for life. For life, I love that sort of stuff. I love the weirdness of it. Definitely, it's so fun. It just so that was like, and I was like, oh, this is cool. So I just kept going, and so I, you know, over all the years that I was there. The role changed so much. The world um, has changed so much yeah, too. Yeah, and you have to be. I, I think I'm. I think of myself now as like a creative producer. You got to make it happen. You got to persuade the people. You got to get the money. And you constantly everything. have to have new ideas and better ideas than yeah. the last ideas, and, and then get the money and the execution yeah, on all of to it. To do that, and um, and I think that, I, and that's what I love. I love being like, oh, come on, can we do that? And when anybody. I think this is the Aussie thing, and it's like from being far away. I still get a kick, and and this is I hope this doesn't sound disingenuous. If anybody turns up, like on a shoot, I'm like, 
I was just thinking about this in the shower, <laughs> you know, <laughs> especially when they fly somewhere. And I'm like, you risked your life. Um, I do. I think that if you had a thought about something, Rihanna in the shark being a good example. I, I love the movie Jaws. It was Jaws anniversary. I love the picture of Steven Spielberg goofing around in his big, like, naff, like, white socks in the shark's mouth. And then you go, hey, Rihanna, do you want to do this shot? You know, and oh, maybe. And you build a shark, this cheesy-looking shark in Brooklyn, and then you truck it down to Tampa and you stick her in the shark mouth when it's actually her and a bunch of with a backdrop of black garbage bags and a neck cushion and then you end up creating this image where she's floating floating in the sea in the mouth of the shark and it's amazing and it becomes a meme and it you know um that's rad you know that's when you can and when people try and what this is what you earn i think when people trust you enough Mm-hmm. And that's the equity you get after being in magazines for a certain amount of time and being a booker mm-hmm. or being the person being like, come on, come on, come on, come and do this. And then when you have the creative idea that they trust, then they show up for you. And that's that's really cool. I want to get to the in-style uh, transition yeah. in a second. But yes. I think that raises an interesting point because in careers – you, you might have ideas when you're mm-hmm. young and just yeah. starting out, but sometimes sharing those ideas, you are met with a totally different audience. I think a great idea should be, you know, received hopefully well and executed. But there, there is something about ideas and, the, and equity. That you build that trust uh, you build, through what you you've done that and trust learned and experienced. And, I think, and you earn it. And, and you can have a great idea and be a younger, a, y- a young person, and but not necessarily have the maturity to carry it out, not have the contacts, not necessarily have the social ability, um, potentially, hopefully not, you know, a level of entitlement. There's a lot of that now, as we see. But like, oh, I should be able to do this now. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can have the idea, but sometimes you're going to have to get the bagel too, you know, and... Um, I think that there's there's an it's never easy, but there is an ease that comes with having the equity behind your ideas. But um, but also just having the the way to be able to persuade people uh, in a way you, your idea is nothing unless people come along with you. Um, and so I, I just being a a good person. I know it sounds so pat, but like and and working well with other people and that and having an ease of communication with people will make everything else. It will all follow. So your ideas then will reach more receptive ears if you're a good, creative, decent person, worker or, or boss. As the editor-in-chief of InStyle, what is yes. the toughest part of your job? Um, it's so performative, and especially for me because I do other stuff like videos and speeches. And um, It's not tough as in it's hard. It's tough physically. Sometimes it's tiring because – Especially when you have new, to be out there in order to continuously there. sell the magazine yeah. and promote. And- yeah, I mean, so I will be, um, they'll be like, Laura, go, you know, come and meet with this room of advertisers. And so I'll go, you know, and I'll, and I'll do my, 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 my talk. <laughs> you do you. Um, I do, I do do me. <laughs> I do do me. <laughs> um, what do you do? I do do do. That sounds like Bernie Sanders. But, um, <laughs> So I go and do that a lot, and also because I'm still new, so I I still have a lot of people I need to meet. Um, I do speeches a lot. I must speak quite a bit. I do town hall things. I do panels. Um, I do videos. I have you know I used to have a video show at Bazaar called The Look, funny little thing. We just goof around with a celeb, and I'm doing that again at Insta. It's called Dirty Laundry. Uh, I, I literally sit with a celebrity in the laundromat <laughs> and they bring clothes. Um, but it's all of that together. And then it's so it's 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 tough sometimes. I can turn it on. I can turn it on in any any room I'm in. But sometimes I just I get I get worn out. I have to go to bed early. I have to have wine at night. You know what I mean? I have to do something because I think because you can you have I mean, like I'm lucky to have a, more than just a print editor string to my bow. I do have with social media stuff and everything else, but because you can do it, you know, and I and people people ask you to do it, and so I, I have to sometimes learn to say no. Absolutely, yeah. I think we all, everybody has yeah. to learn to say no to the right things. I'm, I'm not very good. I'm getting better now. How, yeah. Why do you think you've gotten better? I think that I will get stretched too thin. I think people don't need to hear from me all the time. Uh, I'm an editor. I have to edit myself. I have to edit who I talk to and what I say. And I have to apply that skill in my job to the way that I'm. And also I'm conscious because I I am new at InStyle. And and when the March issue came out, which is my first official issue, I talked to everyone. I was like, let's go. I had everyone was following me around. And I'm so glad they were interested, frankly. But, you know, I was. I was everywhere. Um, And so I'm, I'm conscious of not doing that a lot and I uh, again now because I have a new issue that I it's a first 
we'll get into it, I'm sure, beauty issue, but I, I'm conscious of like not, I'm going to Australia for Fashion Week, Aussie Fashion Week in about a, a month and all these people are asking me and I'm like, I've done stuff, like I'll talk to you when I'm there, but I can't, I can't do it because I think it's too much, I think people will tire of me um, and also for my own health. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You have to sleep. Yeah, I do. What... It seems like the dream that you had as a child ah, is what yes. you now have yes. essentially attained. Yes. How much yes. of it is what you, you thought it would be? Um, a lot of it. I think that I the mythology isn't – I appreciate people. I, I, I think I, I say I'm, I res, I'm respectful but not reverent. I think also another reason why I got to whatever stage this is – is I was very – I'm kind of down with people. I don't get intimidated. I don't glorify people too much. I very much exist on their level. I don't know if it's my only child sense of entitlement or whatever it is. I just can sort of walk in a room and be like, what's up, Carl Lagerfeld? Like, and it's okay, even though I'm respectful. But I, I just – so it's always been easier for me than for – I don't get cowed by people, I guess, as, 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 you know, others can. So I think that that is what has sustained me. But also I don't – who I used to think were the people on the superhighway are just people at work. And I see the – I think a really good example is Christy Turlington. I use this all the time. But I met her when I was a reporter in Sydney and she was coming down with her like supermodelness. And it was like for Nuala, like the yoga stuff she was doing. And I went to interview her. One, I had a terrible hangover. No, but I was young and I'd been out, you know, mm-hmm. and I was like – and she was so nice. And I remember, like, I liked her so much that I ended up telling her that I had a terrible hangover. <laughs> um, but she was, like, this supermodel, and I was just this kid from Sydney. And um, and then we ran into each other a couple of times in, in New York, and, and then we have friends in common. Now we're really, really close friends. Um, and I see her life. And, you know, I used to think that she was just walking around on Versace runways all day, and that's that's not how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that is the, the change. I still... And I also say if every celebrity or model or whatever is a duck on a pond, I always see the legs. I always have been able to. And it's like, okay, it's there now. Like your Instagram face is not your everyday face or whatever that kind of thing is. The legs working That's, hard under the, legs the water. Working hard. I see that. I see that they didn't eat maybe to fit in a gown. I see that the gown was, wasn't was working. I saw that they'd been in the papers for some reason they didn't want to be in the other day. That They didn't have control over the film editing that they just put everything into. That They didn't work for two years. That they... All of that stuff, I see that and I know that now with a lot of these. So I have a lot of – I guess I have more empathy for – I've always had empathy for people. I have more empathy for – I have empathy for fancy people that people think are fancy now. And I think that that – I don't glorify it all as much. I wonder also, given your status, coming in as truly an outsider – Yeah. It almost seems like that helped you a little bit. Yes, 100%. Because I just, I I think I have an inbuilt appreciation for where I am um, because I'm not from here. And I think I have a perspective. I do have an Australian perspective. I can't not have it. You know, so I I do have a, can I swear? I just say, no, (laughs) you know what I mean? I don't have, I have. There are limits on the language we can use on this podcast. Can I do that one? (laughs) I'm looking at the girls in the window. They go, yeah, great. I'm just going to let fly. Beep, beep. Um, you know, I don't have a tolerance for bull and I don't. I, and so I think that 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 really helps too. Um, I am straightforward and having straightforward conversations, and I encourage people to be straightforward with me. It's so. just refreshing, I think. Yeah, when especially in this world now, where you know Instagram and all of social media, there are these incredible platforms, but there are also these places where there just seems to be this huge amount of fakeness like yes fake is all around us and in some respects people are even encouraged to oh, be more fake time. because it's you know the more beautiful the picture the more likes it's going to get whatever you have the more exactly likes and, exactly know, exactly and and when you're doing when you're in your business in particular mm-hmm. and it could be around you 24 7 yes having those real relationships yeah is what has to fulfill yeah you. and i think it's it's super important to me um and I didn't realize this, and I think, again, you, you, in, in our businesses, we do our jobs, but we also look at, can look outside ourselves a little bit because we, we do. We're journalists, and that's, that's sort of fun. I didn't think that – again, I don't want this to sound, um, as we say in Australia, up myself. Um, but I didn't realize I was going to be as different to a lot of the other people in my business as I am. Um, I think it's where I'm from, but also, like, I, I, there's very few people that have a – a public sense of humor in fashion, um, who or who publicly eat 
spaghetti or why you know, is that? I, I don't know. I think that there's 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 still this idea of subscribing to an image that people think is fashion. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I I, I mean, look, I, people, there's insecurity everywhere. I think that that is what I'm and I, being partially from where I'm from, how I was raised, how I see things. It's important to me to show that to young people. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize this because I was just doing my thing. I just was like putting up a funny picture or, you know, or a beautiful picture. And I like glamour and as much as anybody else. But I would get these sort of funny little tweets like from like like a gay kid in the Philippines on Twitter being like, I want to be on Laura's like the look so much. And I'd be like, right back, why aren't you on tomorrow? I'm obsessed with you. You know, like anybody just feeling that I'm I'm making this world less scary to them um, is I really I've taken that on now. And I and that's become my because I'm very conscious of young girls, especially um, and not making things look like they can't attain it. You know what I mean? There's lovely things. I like a nice dress and a nice shoe and a beautiful model and a funny comedian. Whatever it is, I love all of that. I love beauty. I love we all love fashion. We all think about what we put on our on our bodies every day. Um, but there's a way to transmit it to people where the choice is theirs and we're not telling them. On the May magazine cover, yes. you have Amy Schumer. I do. And it is 140 Genius Picks Best Beauty Buys. Best Beauty Buys. So, yeah, the beauty issue, this was... Um, How I do you to... make all of these choices? Oh, it's really cool. They have this... There was this franchise at Insta called Best Beauty Buys. And they poll... They're really diligent because I was like, I didn't know, you know, because I just got there. <laughs> um, they do this hugely comprehensive reporting. They um, poll all these beauty insiders, industry people, and they go... I mean, like hundreds of people. And they say, what is your best foundation? What is your whatever? And they average it out. And that's what you get. So you get um, the best advice from every single person in the business. It was quite dense before um, the beauty buys and lots of words. And it was quite small images. And I was like, no, no, no. Because well, my whole spirit with the magazines, make it bolder and, and, and bigger. So now you have six or something a page but it's like it's extremely clear that this Chanel foundation is the best foundation I I seriously it's do so use well this it is I, how I decide yeah. which things to purchase I use it now and I honestly I think that um I was never particularly um as a magazine reader I would oftentimes skip beauty pages because I found that beauty pages in some titles are not adventurously reported they're not they're just obligatory. They're like they go the, to the same things over and the over same again. Thing over and over again. They go to we got the quote from a dermatologist and I said it really does remove fine lines. Great. Like I'm asleep. You know. <laughs> so, um, I putting more personality but giving better service at the same time. Um, but I think they kicked ass with that. I'm so proud of it. And again, in this whole way I've tried to approach this issue is from my own interest as a reader. What interests me about beauty and why I have dear Amy Schumer on the cover is number one because I could have, you know, it would have been very easy to to launch a beauty issue and put a model on it who bought her own nose or whatever and say that's what beauty is. That's not responsible, I don't think. And um, and I think that I love pretty models, but I didn't want to say on my first one, this is beauty. I put Amy on there because she's got something to say. And, uh, and especially in this environment, um. It's so important to me that that voice is first. I say voice to my staff all the time. I said it doesn't matter what Snapchat filter you're doing or what your reach is. You don't have a voice. You don't have anything. Um, Amy has that. And also she looked kick-ass in that swimsuit. Like it wasn't even my plan for the cover. We did a couple of um, sort of more generic. I wanted to do this. I wanted to shoot her in a pool. I was like I want to get an above shot of this because I want to either do it for a, for a spread in the magazine. But I know like I know she'll look great. I think it will say beauty in a way like she's having you know her spa day but it's kind of ironic and funny and uh and she just she loved it she look at and this honestly we've retouched like around her face because she's got like makeup on in a pool and one tiny thing on the top of her arm which you know when your arms are up you like it sticks out where your shoulder bone is sure but not one other thing you know looks great and i was like i just and it broke the internet last week it's like crazy um and we did this really funny video where we were like asking about like oh my god it's so funny i said please let's do a really unironic non-ironic is that english anyway that you mean <laughs> irony free um <laughs> video with amy asking her about beauty tips and i was like what's your beauty secret you know really right and she goes toilet paper 
Like, and she was in style. Like, it's so funny. Like, I, I, what she went off to get facials, and she's like, well, speaking of someone who's now had three, like, just funny, and, and she's a normal girl. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and then in, inside, what's really cool is, um, as well as all these individual beauty stories, I started a page called My Beauty Mark, and it talks about somebody's, like, red hair or their freckles or their gap teeth or their curves or whatever it is. But I sort of expanded that in the Well of the Magazine, and I had four women talk about their signature. Um, look, so it's Debbie Harry talking about being blonde, obviously. Brooke Shields talking about her eyebrows, obviously. Um, but uh, Nicole Richie talking about her skin. She's mixed race um, and talking about how much she loves the sun. And Gabby Sidibe, Gabrielle Sidibe, um, who was in Precious and in, now in Empire, um, writing about vanity. And she's the greatest writer. Man, she's so good and she's so funny. But it was really cool. To, uh, each girl has their own page with an amazing picture. And it's like they couldn't be more different, different age, different race, different size, different everything, but they all have this great, these great stories. So that's really – that's what I loved so much. And they all just turned up and told us a story. What do you say to young women who want to get into this industry now? Work. Um, is it worth up, it? Do you think it up. still yes, has yes. major potential? Yes. Oh, 100%. So the, for, um, the, for the people out there who are being told don't go after that. No, I, I mean, I hate this whole like uh, crappy talk about print, number one. I think what we do have – no, this is – I always say journalism or ma- magazines, media brand, InStyle, for example. It's a great place to be greedy because we now have – 360 degrees of a way to communicate. It's not just the page. Everything I do on the page has five or six adjuncts online, mm-hmm. a video, a social campaign, a blah, blah, blah. Um, and our online runs independently. And we have features up there every day and stories that have been shot for there every day. So I'm now, I've, now I've got this playground that is so much bigger than just the printer. Um, no, I think that there's no better time to get into, you know, I'll use the old-fashioned word, magazines, um, because you can you can really tell a story, and, and it challenges you to communicate in all these different forums, all these different levels. Um, and again, I there's no better time to have a voice and use it, and that's what I think is. I I, I go to brands and say this. I say this to my staff. I also this to Estee Lauder, whatever. I'd be like. You know, there's all these ways you can aggregate your data and maximize your blah, 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 blah. But I'm like, if you have something to say, people will pay attention. If you have nothing to say, they won't. It doesn't matter what your forum is. If it's if you're, you know, writing in a, a in an attic, your your diary, or if you're editing a magazine, or if you're a politician, or if you're an A-list actress, or whatever it is, have something to say, and you will distinguish yourself. And I and that's how InStyle is distinguishing itself. Hardest lesson you've had to learn along the way? Um, not to be a pleaser. When did you learn that? Um, recently. I have an ability to get on with a lot of people and I can walk into a room and get on and like, ah, oh, she's so fun. I don't, you know. Um, but after a while being like, oh, that person – and again, like I get on with most people, but this person, if I have a chafe with somebody, um, like I, I, if I know I'm right, I'm not so worried about it anymore, mm-hmm. uh, especially being a boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have that to is learn tough. That. You have to learn that being a boss and you have to learn that really fast and it's hard. It's really hard um, to make those sort of decisions, which thankfully I haven't had to really make many, very few. But it is hard. It is hard being like, I'm a nice person. I just want to do the job. Why can't we all get along? Or why can't this all just be skipping on rainbows all day, which I think largely it, it can be. But it is hard if you have to make some sort of decision like that. Uh, More yeah. important to be respected than liked? I think you can be respected and liked. I do. I do. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not copping out. No, I, I agree. I, I, I think you can absolutely be respected and liked. But you also, you need to not put up with, with bullshit. Yeah. You know, and um, and again, it's hard because I've just been like, I've been jazzy, smiley Aussie forever. Still will be. Still am. Um, but you've got to put on your big girl pants sometimes. Worst advice you've received along the way? <sighs> Write a list. Like no, what no five year plan? Make a make a plan. What what's that saying? How to make God laugh? Plan your plans. <laughs> right. I think that stuff's. I don't like it. I like yeah. Show, yeah. Anything you never like, had you that specific that. layout. Never, never. I just I showed up. Just show up. You know what I mean? And don't. Oh, I, no. I have a reverse. It's not. I feel like I'm, I'm. Laura Brown quoting herself. No. Um. I always say to people, underthink it. 
Don't overthink anything. You get nowhere from overthinking anything. Not doing it sometimes. Yeah, that, that's what happens. It. If I yeah. overthink something, a lot of the time it means I wait too long to exactly. actually do the thing. And it you never know, ends don't, well. Don't overthink the email that you're going to send to somebody telling them that you think the world of their mm-hmm. work and that mm-hmm. you'd love to meet them for coffee. Yeah. Just send the just email. Send and be direct and be cool and just get it done. Don't it now these days. Don't overthink your damn Instagram caption. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, just Time's too fleeting. And, and also know, trust yourself that you know enough. Like, you know enough. We, we've got jobs for a reason because I think, well, hopefully we know what we're doing on some days. But, um, <laughs> but you trust yourself that you have, you're where you are for a reason and you've got potential to grow into whatever role you can be and that you're aware and you're alert of what's around you. Don't doubt yourself in those, in those reasons because it never, ever ends well. So I think that that's, that's really something I say to people all the time, underthink. I should trademark that. It's very Ariana Huffington of me. <laughs> <laughs> Laura Brown, thank you so much. I hope that was useful. It was great. I really, I genuinely really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, I hope you did thank too. Thank you so much for caring. I do. No limits. There's no limits to, to my Becky caring. Jarvis is caring. There's no limits to how much I care. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. And if there's someone you think we should have on the show, let me know. You can tweet me at Rebecca Jarvis. And of course, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram and Snapchat. And special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. It is a big one. Taylor Dunn, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Michelle Bancardo, Steve Jones, Erica Scott, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. What is happening here? It's just beautiful chaos. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. To be honest, I was thinking about asking him for a foot massage, and then I I just froze. This is the best gig on TV. And you know anything can happen. That is what we do here. I'm not going to lie. The chair's a little small for my behind. (laughs) (laughs) The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.